We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 this evening, continuing on right through scripture where Eric left off. If you can, remember back with me to where Eric concluded chapter 11 on December 18th, where Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the lawyers through his woeful warnings that addressed their hypocrisy. In his righteous indignation, Jesus calls them out for giving greater credence to their religious practices, for giving greater reverence for their rituals rather than living a life surrendered to the Lord. In short, they were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. The religious leaders had become so concerned with the positions of stature, they've become so concerned with the the praise of people that they invented and implemented rules for righteousness and laid heavy burdens on others in their walk with the Lord. But through Jesus' woeful warnings and his confrontation, he makes it clear that uh, their practices are so misguided, so pervasive that they are not only crippling themselves, but they are hindering others from accessing the kingdom. And he confronts them and he goes after them as lovingly as Jesus does, but firmly. And he delivered these warnings to the religious leaders. And when he did, they could have responded one of two ways. They could have responded in brokenness. They could have responded in humility, recognizing who Jesus was, who the one that stood before them was, and turned from their sin in repentance and turned towards Christ for restoration and forgiveness. But their pride, the hardness of their hearts, would not allow them to do so. Instead, they were incensed by the opposition of Jesus. And they vehemently set out to catch him in some wrongdoing. And you know what the easiest thing for us to do? The easiest thing for us to do is to indict them also. To point an accusing finger and say, oh, those Pharisees, oh, oh, those lawyers, to hear the words of Jesus and believe that his warnings were extended to the religious leaders alone. But Jesus knows the capacity for each one of us to misunderstand the sufficiency of his grace in everything. Jesus knows our tendency when we get off track to establish our own religious practices and institute our own form of legalism and displace him from that proper place that he has or that he's supposed to have in our hearts and minds. Which is why as we pick up our text in chapter 12, Jesus turns from correcting the Pharisees and he turns his instruction towards his disciples, towards his followers, calling us, each of us, as individuals to be aware of our own hypocrisy as well as our tendency toward covetousness, directing us to seek the kingdom, to hold fast to our confession of our hope in who he is, for he is faithful. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, Lord, we do thank you for this evening. We thank you for your faithfulness in every facet of our lives. 
Lord, and as we, as we sung in worship to you, as we lifted up your name, Lord, would you be glorified in this place this evening? Holy Spirit, would you attend your word? Would you lead us into all truth? And would you bring us to that place of correction, if, it's, if we're called to it, of rejoicing in your mercy and grace? And Lord, above all else, would you be glorified in this place? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen, amen. Verse, tw- verse 12, chapter 12, beginning verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops." The end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 illustrate the increasing risk of being associated and connected with Jesus and his ministry. Not only were the religious leaders now seeking opportunity to trap Jesus, to to catch him in some misstep, but the crowds coming to see him were growing so large that the scripture tells us that, that they were beginning to trample one another. And this increasing pressure would have provided opportunity for the disciples to disassociate themselves from Jesus. They would either try to avoid conflict and align themselves with the Pharisees, or they could seek their own and establish themselves as leaders among the crowd, knowing that they had been following Jesus around the the region. Remember, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus is on a mission towards the final destination, which we know, which he knew, was the cross. And which is why he issues the warning to his disciples to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, to hold fast to their understanding of who he is. To be a hypocrite, in his simplest form, means to play a part, to wear a mask, to serve in a role and be something that you're not. And you know what, church? It's one of the easiest things for each of us to do, isn't it? Why is that? Because intrinsically in all of us, we have this desire to be accepted. Within all of us, there is this sewn-in wiring by God creating himself to be in relationship. And sometimes... Too often, playing the part others expect us to seems easier than being true to what we believe and what we stand for. This is why it's possible for us to be one way at home amongst our families and then look another way at work amongst our colleagues and then come in to church and be a third way. We know the proper mask and the proper attire. We know the words and the conduct. We're all capable of pretending to be something we're not. But Jesus says it's a slippery slope. The beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, because it starts as a little thing at first, but soon it spreads. And it takes over like yeast that it's a little thing, but then once it spreads, it rises and causes the materials to change. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees was attempting to appear more spiritual than they were, which is the very same risk of hypocrisy that exists for each one of us. 
tempted to come in and present a finished product. I've got it all together, this road to sanctification. I'm shiny and I'm new. Rather than coming in as a redeemed sinner who wrestles in the flesh day by day to hold fast to what we believe and what we hold to be true. Another even more subtle form of hypocrisy that we face as believers is the temptation to tone down our witness, depending on our context, isn't it? We don't, out of fear of being perceived as too spiritual, hiding who we really are in Christ among those who we know are opposed to the gospel. Certainly there is place for letting our lives speak for themselves, but the Lord says, open your mouth and confess me. Tell the truth. And in either case, whether it's hypocrisy of lifestyle, hiding who we are, we demonstrate that we are more concerned with the opinions of other people rather than honoring and glorifying our God. Thankfully, all praise to the Lord, Jesus calls us from such deceptive living. You see, because we can only be hypocrites before men. We can only pretend before one another, but the Lord sees through our masks. He sees through our deceptions and he sees to our, to our hearts and he sends his Holy Spirit to convict and call away to turn back to him in his grace and mercy. Hebrews 4 and 13 tells us that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is only when we have a right understanding of who we are and a right understanding of who God is that we are truly free to be who God has called us to be. And it is for freedom that he has set us free. Amen. Verse four. And I say to you, my friends, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him whom after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The fear of man is a real thing. And we give into our fear of other, when others might say something about us. We give into our fear when we perceive that others might do something to us because of our relationship with Christ. We find ourselves compromising and acting in a manner that betrays our beliefs and our convictions. Jesus would have understood the mounting pressure on his disciples. He would have understood what they were experiencing as they continued to follow him. So he instructs them to put their fear in proper perspective, to get their priorities in order by maintaining a proper view of man and a proper view of God, a proper view of a created being 
and an infinite being, the one who was at the beginning, who called all of life into existence by his very words. So the worst that can happen at the hands of men like the Pharisees, he says, is that they can kill the body. I don't know if you know this, but we're all going to find an end that way. We're all going to pass into eternity. And the worst that the Pharisees can do is get them there sooner. But we know that God is sovereign over all, and he's the one who's numbered our days. So even that, they're not in control of because God is our defender. But God, who also has the ability to take our life from us, has the power to cast our eternal souls into hell. The Lord is the final judge for all men, believer and unbeliever alike. We don't escape the judgment just because we don't believe in the God of the Bible. And since he is the one who judges for eternity, he is the one in which we should rightfully place our fear. But Jesus assures us that we have great value to God. That our fear of him is not filled with uncertainty, but when we place our, the proper amount of fear in who he is, there is assurance and there is peace and security. Church, God knows everything about you. God knows everything about me down to the very number of hairs on our head. Some of you know that about yourselves as well. His care and his knowledge of us is intimate and it's detailed. And if he does not forget a single sparrow where five of them are sold for two copper coins, the least of the denominations in Rome, seemingly of worthless value in the sight of men, if he doesn't forget the sparrows, how much more valuable are we who are made in his image? How much more valuable are you the object of his redemption? The one he came and paid the penalty for. Because God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up He's not waiting for us to get ourselves right and figure it out and understand the way everything works and then come to him and show him how good we are. He's saying, come to me all who are thirsty and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have more value, value than many sparrows. You have more value than all of the created order because you are made in the image of God. Verse 8, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to, but to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven we're not saved by living moral lives. We're not saved by reading our Bibles by, or by attending a church service. We are saved by grace through faith. 
through placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by placing our faith in the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Authentic faith, faith in Christ is always coupled with confession with him to others. That which is real in our hearts will make its way to our lips. Confession is not a requirement for salvation. It is evidence of salvation. So when we find ourselves in a situation where we are unwilling to confess Christ, when we find ourselves hesitant to share the hope that is in us, it should give us pause. It should cause us to seek out the Lord in his mercy and to examine ourselves and ask why. I lost my place, sorry. We should be asking, is my fear of man greater than my fear of God. We should be asking, why am I afraid in this situation? What can this person do to me that my God has not already delivered me from? Or we should be asking the most important of all questions, am I truly in the faith? Do I believe what I think I do? We are called to work out work out our own salvation in fear and trembling to examine ourselves, to seek out the Lord. And it is the Lord in his pursuit of us, faithfully and continually seeking us out and bringing us to moments of crisis in our faith so that we might respond in brokenness, so that we might respond in humility once again turning from our sin and turning to him for forgiveness and restoration. You see, repentance is not a one-off activity that happens at the day of our salvation. Repentance is a continuous place that we need to be brought to over and over again to glorify the Lord and to hear from him and have our relationship restored as we've turned away over and over. a necessary part of the Christian life, and it's the Spirit of God that leads us there. It's the Spirit of God that convicts us and brings us to that place of brokenness. So it begs the question, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Since Jesus says in verse 10 that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, don't you think it's important for us to know what it is? We know that the Trinity consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. We know that they are equal in glory and in worth. They are equal in their eternality and in their divine attributes. So why is one singled out as the one against whom a sin cannot be forgiven? And I think the answer lies to the role of the Spirit who reveals the person and character of Jesus Christ in God's plan of salvation. The Spirit's primary ministry 
is to lead each one of us to the Savior, to point us to Christ for salvation. Jesus himself tells us in John 15 and 26, when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Rejecting the leading of the spirit to the person of Christ is to reject the Father's plan of salvation through the Son. This blasphemy is not a matter of irreverent words or saying things, but it's a conscious, persistent, wicked rejection of the Spirit's witness of Christ and his atoning work on the cross. I don't want it. The Spirit of God attends his word. The Spirit of God accompanies his word when it's read, and he testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God confirms that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The Spirit lets us know if we have ever accepted the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins for ourselves. And to reject his leading, to bring us to Christ, is to blaspheme. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejection. Rejection of all that God has to offer. And he's calling each one of us to receive his free gift of salvation. Not earn it in any way, but to come as you are, no masks, he sees through it anyway, and to come and be restored. Verse 11. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit is the believer's helper. And as Jesus warns his disciples that men would persecute them in both civic and religious contexts, he encourages them not to worry about what they say. Because the helper, the Holy Spirit, the one who dwells inside of his people, would teach them what to say in that very hour. I like the way William Barclay, a 20th century Scottish minister, put it when he wrote, it is the promise of God that when a man is on trial for his faith, the words will come to him. Church, when you're on trial for your faith, when somebody challenges you over the hope of the, that's within you, the words will come to you. We can trust as followers of Christ in his perfect faithfulness. In moments of testing, we can know his Holy Spirit will speak through us for his glory and his glory alone. However, I do not believe that these verses give us an excuse for being ignorant of God's word. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come, and in my opinion, now is. 
The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. First Peter 3, 15 and 16. Sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. You may have noticed, I certainly have, but it seems like our world is changing at a breakneck pace. And it seems like the dividing line, it's coming down to who Christ is. And the Lord in his abundant mercy and love for his people, is longing to draw many to himself through his Holy Spirit. He's giving us, his disciples, the ones who were called out of darkness into marvelous light, ample opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to give a reason for the hope that is in us. For, because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He is not willing that any should perish, that, but that all should come to repentance. And let me encourage you, don't believe the lie of the enemy that says people don't want to hear it. Don't believe the lie that the enemy says that people don't want to hear the truth of a God in heaven who loves them and knows them individually and has made a way for them to know him. Our world is longing for something to hope for. Our world is looking for something beyond themselves. And Christ is it. He's all we have. And he says, declare my name. My spirit attends my word. I will move in power and I will save as many as will come to me. Verse 13. <laughs> then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is not the first time that Jesus is interrupted by someone who seemingly wants to change the subject. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. This man interrupts and he wants Jesus to settle a dispute of an inheritance he's to receive. And according to the law in the Old Testament, rabbis were set to resolve such issues. But Jesus demonstrates that he's for, far more concerned with matters of the kingdom than settling this minor dispute over money. So he takes the opportunity to warn those listening against one of the most dreadful sins that ensnares us and it's covetousness we're all familiar with murder as a sin we're all familiar with 
adultery is a sin and bearing false witness, but covetousness is so easy to just gloss on over. Beware of covetousness. Covetousness is a greedy desire to have more. And it can manifest itself for more money, more possessions, higher status, a greater position, more power. And Jesus says, beware of covetousness. It's deceptive. It will rule you. It will take away your joy. Continue with me in verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and, where, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In this parable, Jesus makes it clear that true life does not come from the abundance of things. Success does not come from an abundance of things. Security cannot be found in the abundance of things. And as we examine the life of the rich man and note the specific aspects of his character that Jesus includes in the parable, would we, each of us, allow the Lord by his spirit to confront and challenge us? Would each of us make room for him to reveal our own hearts to us concerning covetousness? You see, because covetousness is the very thing that takes away contentment. And the first thing we note about the rich man is that he is greedy. No matter how great the crop is that yields to him, no matter how much was laid away in storage, his thoughts are continually on how he can accumulate and preserve more for himself. I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will take my crop and stock it up for myself. His thoughts continually on his own. For most of us, most of us as citizens of this nation, as the United States, we have lived lives of abundance, haven't we? Especially when you compare the standard of living in the United States against the rest of the world. But contentment in this nation remains elusive. And we are continually driven toward more and bigger and better, achieve more, accumulate more. Yet more will never satisfy. It's an unquenchable thirst. It's deceptive. The Lord would have us resting in a place of contentment. Contentment and satisfaction with his goodness and what he has provided for each one of us. 
1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Is that where we are this evening? Content. The second thing we note about the rich man is that he's selfish. There's not the slightest hint of him sharing of his abundance. All he can think about is how to keep everything that he's accumulated. And it's the world's philosophy that tells us, look out for number one. Step on all those who get in your way, get ahead, achieve more, while the Lord calls us to care for the well-being of others, to treat our neighbors as ourselves, love our neighbors as ourselves. And the final thing we note about this man, man is that he's incredibly foolish. God calls him such, doesn't he? Not because he was rich, but because he lived a life without any awareness or any preparation for eternity. As soon as his new barns were built, he planned to eat, to drink, and to be merry, to satisfy himself. He had an incorrect understanding of what it meant to live, and he had an, an incorrect understanding of death, thinking that he could live a long life of abundance and that death was far off. But God knew the number of his days, and when he perished, he perished in poverty in God's economy. It doesn't matter how much we have. If we live a life devoid of relationship with the Lord, when we come to the end of our days, the days that the Lord has numbered, we will have nothing. Knowing God and making him known is our business. Being rich toward God means acknowledging his provision and fostering an attitude of thankfulness. Would each of us examine the investments we are making for the kingdom? Are we investing our time and our efforts and our money in eternal things to further God's kingdom? Are we sharing the good news of Christ with those who we are coming into contact with? There are places within this city, many ministries that love the Lord and are spreading the gospel on the city that are in need of laborers. What investments are we making for the kingdom? It's not to earn our salvation. It's response to the salvation, to the goodness of our Lord. Verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for this section of scripture. Because God in his mercy acknowledges a reality of our fallen condition, doesn't he? That we are all prone to worry. We are prone to anxiety and he calls us out of it in his name. A study done a few years ago concerning married men in America indicated that married men in this country, the greatest fear is over money. But not money in general, but in the ability to provide for their families. And I got to tell you, there's a difference between a godly sense of responsibility as leader and provider of a home and an untrusting worry over the necessities of this life. The worry that Jesus speaks of here, the worry that we are prone to carry over having enough food and having clothing, reduces man to an animal that is merely concerned over his physical needs. But Jesus assures us that our lives are more valuable than animals. Our lives have worth and that he will provide for each one. Verse 29. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nation of the world seeks after, and your father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's worth remembering why Jesus started this teaching on treasure and greed. It stemmed from a man who interrupted him and told him, settle the dispute between me and my brother. And it is to this man and to us tonight that Jesus tells us about where the location of the treasure of our hearts needs to be. Seeking the kingdom of God is the difference in priority between a redeemed child of God and a lost and dying world. The priority of the believer is on the eternal and the reality of fulfilling God's highest purpose for man to be in relationship with him. For the unbeliever, the priority is on the temporal. It's fixated on the here and now. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But then what? Eat, drink, and be merry, but tomorrow, for tomorrow we die. But then what? Because the fact of the matter is, each of us is going to spend eternity somewhere. Each of us is going to be held accountable according to where we have placed our treasure and what we have done with Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that there is none who seeks after God, that all have turned aside. But it is God in his goodness and his mercy who seeks after and pursues us through his Holy Spirit, convincing, convicting us of sin and demonstrating our need for a Savior, inviting us to turn from our sin in repentance and receive his forgiveness. Church, 
on December 31st, 2023, would we all condition, consider the condition of our hearts this evening? And would we surrender afresh to the one who restores our souls, who's calling us to renewed relationship with him, if not for the first time unto salvation, for the hundredth time to turn to him in his forgiveness? Would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, uh, we do thank you for your word, Lord, that is sharper than two-edged sword that is able to divide between soul and spirit. And Lord, we just trust your Holy Spirit to, to move, to confirm, to assure us of who you are. And Lord, as we, as we end tonight, would, would you cause us to examine our days, examine our relationships, and would we be testimonies of your glory and of your mercy and of your grace. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these in Jesus' name. Amen.